Well, we are in the book of Daniel, in Daniel 6, and uh, as you turn there, or while you're turning there, obviously this is a familiar chapter, and this is a familiar story, and so in one way you could say it's story time with Chow, that's what we're going to be trying to do this morning, uh, but this, is, this, this message, at least on my heart, and this text in the context of Daniel is so powerful. It is so compelling. It it ties in with what we have been even observing this morning through the mention of the essential church. It it ties in with our lives. It ties in directly with with powerful bearing on our circumstances. It it is truly profound. And so while we often relegate Daniel 6 to a children's Sunday school class with flannel graph and, and cute lions, I don't think they were really that cute because they could kill you. But in any case, while we try to relegate it to that, this is a profound story. This is a profound story, a sophisticated, complex one. And it ultimately glorifies God in such a magnificent way. So to that end, shall we begin in a word of prayer to ask the Lord to bless and empower this time. Our God and Father, we recognize that without you, we are utterly helpless and useless. And when it comes to this passage of Scripture, which is so culminatively splendid as it unveils your glory, and it unveils the weight of your majesty and the weight of your person and plan, help us not to allow our over-familiarity, in a sense, of, of this text, to obscure the revelation that takes place and has taken place in what you have done and recorded and handed down to generation after generation. May our hearts be open to be convicted and to be challenged and to be encouraged and ultimately to worship you. May we learn many lessons this morning, all of which which honor you. In your name we pray. Amen. We have been in what I would say, from just listening to many of you all here, a rich study in the book of Daniel. We have seen the unfailing and total sovereignty of God announced from the very beginning, from the very opening words of the book of Daniel, proven all the way through this book that and that he has unwavering authority. He is, as the name Daniel means, he is the one who judges the nations. The nations do not determine God. God determines as he judges every single country in all history on this earth. And God has demonstrated that chapter by chapter, truly paragraph by paragraph, even verse by verse throughout this book. It is proven, this thesis is proven, when the king challenged that God could reign by trying to coerce his people to follow Babylon instead of following God, trying to change Daniel and his friends' names and their diet and their lifestyle and their education to assert that, no, it is not Yahweh's way that is supreme, it is Babylon's way that is supreme. But in the end, the one who has to capitulate is the king. The one who has to capitulate and promote even Daniel and his friends is the king. So who really is the king on the throne? It is not the king of Babylon. It is Yahweh, the king of heaven and of earth. And along that line, it is proven, this thesis of God's sovereignty, 
when the king can, has a dream and his sleep eludes him. The king thinks he's so mighty because he has a massive military and he can take over another nation, a nation like Israel or Judah. And God says, I can disturb you though and control you by with a thought. I don't even need a military. I don't even need an army. I can just give you one thought, one dream that is so disturbing, you can't sleep, and the entire nation goes into a crisis searching for the answer to whatever was revealed in that nightmare that you had, Nebuchadnezzar. That is the sovereignty of God. And even the content of that dream is a declaration of the supreme sovereignty of the Lord because it lays out all of history. From, from that moment in Daniel to the very end times, that kingdom after kingdom would come, and God was sovereign over every single kingdom, and ultimately that would culminate in a kingdom that could not be overthrown, it could not be destroyed, and that is the case. There was a Medo-Persia, and it is no longer. And just remember this, there was a Rome, and it is no longer. We were talking about archaeological finds, and that there's well-preserved ruins. That's what all those nations were. They were real. They occupied time and space and they are no longer exactly like God's plan is. And so following that pattern, if there is a prediction of four nations that come and go with the ultimate fifth one of the Son of God coming, then we know, then we know based on that pattern. This is without a shadow of a doubt. God has already demonstrated that he can and he will execute this plan. And without a shadow of a doubt, there will be a revived Roman Empire that will come and go, just like all the rest of them have done, ultimately culminating, though, in the kingdom of his son, which will occupy real space and real time like all of those other kingdoms. God's sovereignty is not a theoretical concept. It is not a hypothetical idea. It is the facts on the ground. It is history in the making, and it has determined history, and all prophecy is, is giving you history, how we understand history ahead of time. That is the nature of Scripture, and that is the nature of God's authority. And God proved then the sovereignty of himself to people in the time of Daniel, because the king, that is Nebuchadnezzar, tried to challenge that plan. He said, instead of having a statue made of different metals, which symbolize different nations, he said, it's all of gold. It's all me. I'm the statue. It's all about me. I'm the one who rules. He tried to overthrow God's plan and send anyone who tried to oppose him to a fiery furnace. Well, guess what? In the end, by sending those individuals to a fiery furnace, the one who thought he was the plan of God met the one who actually will accomplish the plan of God because he said, I thought we threw three in here, and who does he see? Fourth one, one like the son of the gods. Statue, meet the stone, the stone that will crush you in the end. You cannot defeat the plan of God. And Nebuchadnezzar, because he... Well, he's just a sinner saved, and we understand this. He continues in his idiocy, and then in Daniel 3, he doesn't just challenge God's plan. He actually challenged the person of God. He said, all, or Daniel 4, rather, he said, all of these riches, they're by my might, they're by my power, and he asserted himself in God's place. God is the only one who raises and cast down. He is the only one who gives and takes away. And Nebuchadnezzar thought he was that one. He put himself in God's place. And God said, let me help you to understand what you really are without me. You're just an animal. You're just an animal. Nebuchadnezzar, who ate the finest dining, had the finest dishes, and had the finest palace, became one who just ate grass. And it's a lesson. Without God, without the sovereignty of God, you are nothing. 
you are nothing. And so God demonstrated over and over and over, you cannot oppose me, you cannot oppose my plan, you cannot oppose my intentions, you cannot oppose my people, you cannot oppose anything for all time. And just to make sure everyone understands this, then there's Daniel 5. And in Daniel 5, it is the, shall we say, the grandson, the relative of Nebuchadnezzar, the the successor of Nebuchadnezzar. And he believes in his absolute arrogance, though surrounded at the very moment by Medo-Persia, but his walls were secure in his own mind, that he would not have to surrender his kingdom, that the head of gold would not have to move to the shoulders of silver, that one kingdom would not have to follow another, that he could stop the plan of God. And he even celebrated, and if you see this in Daniel 5, you can hear it. He celebrated the gods of gold and silver and wood and iron and bronze. Where have you heard that language before? The statue. He is just celebrating the statue. He is celebrating everything that man believes himself to be. And what does God say? This very night, your kingdom will be taken from you. You have been weighed. You have been measured. You have been found lacking. You're dead. You cannot stop the plan of God. You cannot believe that man has the power And man has the sovereignty to restrain what God has set in motion. And so you have the proof over and over and over. You can't stop God. He is absolutely sovereign. He's sovereign over what people eat. He's sovereign over what people dream. He's sovereign over a king. He can make you eat grass if he so desired. He can convert your soul, like in the case of Nebuchadnezzar. He can cause one nation to come and one nation to go. He can do that in one night, over and over and over, whether you're looking at kingdom or kings individual or nations, any single angle possible, God reigns supreme. And his plan goes forward, and it is proven, because just like Daniel said, Babylon would come and go, and it did. And that's Daniel 5. And at that point, you think, the proof is exhaustive. What else do you need? Why do you have Daniel 6, or 7, or 8, or 9, or 10, or 11, or 12? Why? And if you think about Daniel 6, we kind of get fatigued when we read this, especially since we are familiar with it, given our background in children's Sunday school. Oh, yeah, I know Daniel. Daniel in the lion's den. He got thrown in there. He petted the lions all night. He used them as a pillow. It's a wonderful story. And then he get home, and then, you know, often this isn't told in children's Sunday school. Then they fed all his enemies to the lions. That's the adult version, and it makes us feel very good. Now, we say these things, and we think, why? It's a nice story, but why is it there? Because we have built up, having read Daniel, this expectation, of course the guy's going to get delivered. I mean, what happened to his friends? Delivered. What happened to him with the vegetables? Delivered. What happened to him with the dream when he was questioned? Delivered. He's always delivered. And so we just expect, oh, yeah, there's lines. Yeah, there's, okay, whatever. And he's going to be delivered. And that's how we kind of read the narrative. And on one hand, that's dangerous because it lessens the severity of the situation. I don't know about you. It doesn't matter if it's a fiery furnace or a lion's den. I, I'm scared of either. That, that's, that's just the truth of the matter. On the other hand, though, you're actually hitting at the point 
with that familiarity. You're hitting at the point because why have Daniel 6? Why tell this story? You've already proven the point, God. You've already shown it from so many different angles. What is left to say is this. Is God still sovereign when everything changes? He was sovereign over Babylon. We knew that. Sovereign over Babylon, the nation. Sovereign over their culture. Sovereign over their king. Sovereign over the beginning. Sovereign over their middle. Sovereign over the end. We understand that. But what happens when you get a new team? What happens when it's Medo-Persia? What happens when it's a different country? What happens because it's an important problem in our lives? How often is it that we face a trial and we face a challenge and we face trouble and it sends us to our knees? We're desperate. We're praying to the Lord. We're beseeching him that he would intervene, that he would show his faithfulness, that he would resolve things. And the Lord answers. And how do we know the Lord answers? Because you're here. You're here. That's the only reason why you are here. It's because he has answered so many prayers. And after the resolution is given, and after the solution is made, and after the trial passes, ten minutes later, a new trial comes up. And you say, what are we going to do? I don't know. What, what's going to happen? And we can't translate that just ten minutes ago, You were saying, praise the Lord, look at how faithful he is, look at how loyal he is, look at how sovereign he is, and then 10 minutes later, you're back into the same spiral you were 10 minutes, you know, 11 minutes before the 10 minutes. That's our problem. And to be fair, we're not alone. We're not alone. Think about the disciples during Christ's ministry. How do you know Jesus is God? There are many proofs, but one of them is that he was just so patient with those guys. And he's patient with us all. But you remember that Jesus fed 5,000 plus. And then he fed 4,000 plus. So he fed 9,000 plus. He fed twice. Not just once, twice. Different places, different times, different occasions. And then in Mark 8, 16 to 21, right after he did this, he's warning his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees. And the, and the disciples don't understand. And they said, maybe he's upset because we forgot the bread. And Jesus says, how many were at the first feeding? How many baskets left over? Twelve. Okay. How many at the second one? Uh... 4,000? How many baskets left over? Seven. And then Jesus asked the final question. It's the best question ever. Do you still not understand? <laughs> they didn't get it. They thought he, he was frustrated about bread when you have the bread maker right in front of you. They didn't understand. And we laugh at that. And it's hilarious. It really is funny. Especially if you're an omniscient God. It's very, very funny. But we're the same. We look at our life, and one minute we're praising God because he's taking care of us, and the next minute we're unsure if he will because we can't translate it over. We keep denying that he's still sovereign. We know he's sovereign. We know he was sovereign, but we deny that he's still sovereign. 
Or it's like this. We have trouble making parallels and making analogies in our lives. We, we forget that one situation is just really like the other situation. And so you can apply the same truths from one situation to another. This often plagues us in Bible study. People get frustrated that the Bible doesn't just give us exact and precise and specific instructions for what to do in a specific time. But there's a reason for that because the Bible gives us the universal truths that you can then apply to situations that are similar to what the Bible's talking about. That's the whole infrastructure and logic and rationale of biblical application is you compare and you make analogy and you make comparisons between the two and that brings everything together. But we just can't do that. We just don't think, just like God did here, so he is doing there. We don't think this situation is just like this other situation, either or where God had already taught us some very important lessons. We don't have that mechanism in our mind. And so, as a result of all of this, even though God's word is so clear on who he always is, in every situation, and even though we saw that 10 minutes before, when the new trial hits, everything goes out the window, and we wonder what God is doing and what he will do, even though we should know this is basically the same thing like before, and God will do the same kinds of things he did before. Why? Because he's still sovereign. And in Daniel 6, what you learn is this. You might say, Daniel 6, a lot of it sounds like all the other stories. You have no idea how similar and intentionally similar it's supposed to be. And we're going to study about that in a little bit. Nevertheless, that similarity is on purpose to give you a message. It doesn't matter if the kings change. It doesn't matter if the countries change. It doesn't matter if your world is turned upside down and everything looks different, different place, different language, different customs, different culture. It really doesn't matter. Our God has never changed. He is still sovereign. And so this is like a story time because this is a story, but through it all, that is the resounding theme. You can almost put it this way and I don't want to rob the punchline, but it's important for us to know God doesn't change, so you shouldn't either. God doesn't change, so you shouldn't either. And we'll see it. Now, this story has eight points. I don't know how far I'm going to get, but the thankful thing of this is that I have two more weeks. So if I don't get through it, then... Promotion, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. As this story begins, this familiar story, everything looks different for Daniel. Everything looks different. 
You have a different kind of king whose name is a different kind of language, this Darius fella. You got a different kind of government overnight set up, 120 satraps uh, over the kingdom. And you might say, wait a minute, but you, you got that word satraps before. Yes, but it's a different configuration of them, and it's a different kind of operation of them. And they're going to be in charge of the whole kingdom. So the government's different. It's certainly different, verse 2, because over them are three commissioners, Three commissioners. So you have a different king, a different country, a different language, a different governmental structure. And for us, we're reading this and we're saying, yeah, I mean, this is kind of a history lesson. Do I really even need to care? This is really not a big deal. Can we get to the good stuff like when Daniel and the lion's den actually happens? Does this really even matter? But let's pause here for a second and just remember this, that if you put yourself in Daniel's shoes... This is a very perilous situation. Everything has changed. The entire structure of your government has changed. The entire structure of your politics has changed. Your culture has changed. You make a misstep. You don't know where you fit in all this. You could be dead. We know this. When you get a new boss, your whole workplace goes into turmoil. There are a lot of hesitations, and there's a lot of activity, and a lot of flutter, and a lot of nervousness. I know that because people come to me and ask for prayer as things change, when bosses and workplaces change. This is times a thousand worse. Because this isn't just about your workplace. This is about the government. And this isn't just about the government or a country You have to remember, Daniel's a foreigner to Babylon, and now he's a double foreigner to Medo-Persia. Because Babylon liked him, which means that he was the friend of their enemy, which makes him a frenemy. (laughs) What is, he's dead. And then you got people who don't like him. This is a matter of life and death. And you say, are you really sure it's a matter of life and death? Yes, that's why this entire chapter exists. Because when there's a governmental change like this, everything changes. And in, this, in, in some situations, yes, your job is on the line. And I understand that. And that's why we are in deep prayer for people in transitions. But for here, Daniel's life is on the line. Whether he will live or die. And in that moment, here's what you learned. God is still sovereign. How do you know that? There were three commissioners out of all the people of Medo-Persia, out of all the nations that this next superpower of the entire world had conquered, out of all the people educated in the Medo-Persian system, out of all of those people, you picked three of your top people, and guess what? One of them was not even Medo-Persian. It was Daniel. Daniel was one of them. And these are the top guys. Why? Because everyone is accountable to them. The satraps were accountable to them. And the satraps were over all the kingdom. These three are the highest that you can go. Really, why? Because what is their only responsibility? End of verse 2. That the king may not suffer lost. They were answerable to one person. And had direct access and representative authority of that one individual. And who was that? The king. The king. Have you ever noticed that Daniel's always promoted? Daniel 1, what's the end result? Promoted. And Daniel 2, what's the end result? Promoted. Daniel 3, what's the end result? Promoted. Daniel 4, promoted. Daniel 5, 
promoted, but he didn't want the promotion. Daniel 6, what happens to the guy? Promoted. Why? Because God is sovereign. And he does the exact same thing that he did before. He is absolutely sovereign. Everything may have changed, but nothing has changed relative to God. And to make this absolutely clear that God is so sovereign, look at verse 3. Then this Daniel, not any Daniel, this one, this one, this distinguished one, he began to what? Distinguish himself among the commissioners and the satraps. Because why? An extraordinary spirit was in him. Have you heard that phrase before, extraordinary spirit? Yes, this is found in Daniel 5 and other passages. What did the Babylonians recognize about Daniel? God had put in him an extraordinary spirit. Everyone knew this was supernatural. Everyone knew this was supernaturally caused. Everyone knew that this was about Daniel's God. Everyone knew that he had supernatural empowerment, and therefore his attitude, his internal disposition, his wisdom, his intellect was something that they had never seen before because God is God still sovereign. And the answer is yes. How sovereign is this God? To the point, look at the end of verse 3. The king planned to set Daniel over the, you know, what? The entire kingdom. Basically, Daniel would be made what? King. What was God's plan? No nation will ever rule, except ultimately what nation? The nation of Israel headed by who? The Messiah. God's sovereignty was working so strongly, you were about to get a taste of that then you were that's how inexorable that's how inevitable that's how inescapable that's how compelling and forceful god's sovereign plan is that he would actually trigger an event which almost would be a prefigurement of everything that he had said that's how influential god's sovereignty is the good stuff brothers and sisters isn't just the deliverance from the lions this is the good stuff right here. Why? Because it's a reminder. Yes, in this life, the life can change. And there can be 10 bazillion things that are uncertain. There can be new factors that you have never faced before. Questions of how things will work because all the conditions and all the aspects and all the factors have changed. But do we understand exactly what chapter 6, 1 through 3 is teaching us? That when that happened to Daniel and literally overnight it was one nation and then another nation, a completely different system, a completely powerful power reshuffle what is still true, our God still reigns, and he does exactly what he's always done. He has not changed at all. He has not changed one bit. And so while we may be fearful because we see everything in front of our eyes changing, what we need to do is have our eyes look to heaven and remember this, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Yes, Daniel was promoted. And upon promotion, there's a plot, verses 4 through 9. We know this. People against Daniel in regard to matters of the kingdom. There is a conspiracy here that perhaps you could say is even more intense than conspiracies of the past. For one, you have different people, and, and it's the commissioners and the satraps. They're all involved, and it's an intensified in its initiation. Because before, if you remember Daniel 1 or Daniel 2 or Daniel 3, it isn't that Nebuchadnezzar had it out for Daniel. 
It wasn't that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to target Daniel. It was that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to elevate himself. Nebuchadnezzar loved himself so much. And in doing so, the consequence of it was that persecution and oppression launched against Daniel. But this is different because these commissioners and these satraps, they actually want to target Daniel. This is a more insidious conspiracy. And they got persistence. They realized very quickly they can't nail Daniel on the matters of the kingdom. They cannot find anything wrong with him because of his integrity. That's what the text says, inasmuch as he was faithful. No negligence or corruption was to be found in him. So the men said in verse 5, Well, we're not going to find any ground of accusation against Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. They really had to put their heads together and persist to try to topple this individual. And so you have a conspiracy that's different and more intense because it has different people, an intensified initiative, an intensified persistence. And not only that, it has intensified sophistication. Notice verse 6, then the by agreement. Notice that word there, by agreement. That word is used repeatedly throughout Daniel 6 to show the unity, the conspiracy, the planning, the plotting of these individuals. They, they had a well-thought-out, essentially in their minds, bulletproof plan to destroy Daniel. This is the best planning that Medo-Persian education and human evil ingenuity could ever offer. This is the worst plot ever, and the best plot ever, depending on how you'd like to look at it. And it's even got intensified deceit involved in it. Verses 6 and 7 and 8. The commissioner satraps came by agreement to who? The king. And thus said to him, King Darius, live forever. Of course, flattery is always helpful, and it will begin with flattery, and it will end with flattery. And in the midst of the flattery, they get peer pressure. All the commissioners of the kingdom and the prefects. Notice, that's a lie. All the commissioners of the kingdom? Uh, You mean like all two of them? Because clearly Daniel wasn't in on this. Peer pressure. And the prefects and the satraps. The high officials and the governors. Eh, this This is party wide. You know, sometimes we talk about the divide between Democrats and Republicans and whatever. There's no divide here. It's a united front of the government. And they've all counseled together. And now they make a different issue. That the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who seeks to make a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days, stop right there. The issue is different. The issue here isn't even trying to force people into idolatry like Daniel 3. Maybe the Medo-Persians realize that doesn't really work so well because then you get an angel of Yahweh who comes and destroys everything. Maybe they understood that. So here, it's not even disrupting all worship. It's only forbidding one thing. You can't make any prayer requests. You can worship your God. You can give thanks to your God. You can sing praises to your God. You can do anything except one thing, which is what? Make a request. The only one you can make a request of for just 30 days is who? You have to only ask the king, which gets to ego, does it not? Because king, you're the only one worth asking. 
Because you're the only one who has authority. Because you're the only one who has power. So why don't we just ask you? And king, speaking of your power, verse 8, we'll live what we said. You have to be the one who establishes that injunction. And you sign the written document so that it may not be changed. That phrase, sign the written document, that's the same phrase that's found in Daniel 5 with the handwriting on the wall. You can have that kind of power, like the hand that's writing on the wall, setting people's destiny. That's your power, O king. You have it. Ego at the beginning, ego at the end. A terrible punishment on top of that, being cast into the lion's den. You're dead if you go there. More on that in a second. And so what you have at this point is you have a different people having an intensified initiation of a conspiracy, intensified persistence in this, intensified conspiracy itself because it's all mixed in together, an intensified cunning within this, an intensified kind of uh, appeasement to the king, an intensified kind of arrogance and and, and uh, assertion because the king is going to sign that written document by himself. All of these things look different to us. Everything, even the punishment looks different to us. It's more fearsome in some ways. And we might say, yeah, this looks like a totally different situation. But if you actually read it carefully, it's really the same. It's really the same. One, the satraps, we already heard of them before and they already plotted, yes. And do you see how it says... In verse 4, the commissioners and the satraps began seeking to find a ground of accusation. That word seek, guess what? In Daniel 2, the king sought to kill Daniel. Daniel 3, the king sought to find Daniel and his friends to put them in the fiery furnace. The king sought, seeking, seeking, seeking over and over and over again. It's nothing new. They're always seeking against God's anointed ones. And then the writing, like we said, was the handwriting on the wall. And here's something. Yeah, it looks like the lion's den is this new and improved punishment. But did you actually read this? They shall be cast into the lion's den. Did you remember what the king said in Daniel chapter 3 about Daniel's friends? They will be cast into the fiery furnace. Same phrase. Same phrase. It's no different. It's no different. And you know one other thing that didn't change? In all of this plotting, in all of these conspiracies, Daniel didn't change. Daniel didn't change. Why? Because he still remained faithful no matter what those people said. And he had no negligence or corruption to be found in him. Daniel didn't change. And there's a lesson in this. In life, there will be plots. In there will be new trials. In life, there will be new conspiracies. In life... Just watch the news. There's always something new. That's why it's called news. It's plural new things. Found us. And nothing should shake us. And guess what? We shouldn't change. We should just continue to be the same kind of saints we always were. People who could not, who no one can find negligence or corruption in them. You don't neglect things. You don't do things wrong on purpose. Rather, you are just so faithful. The only thing they can get at you with is this. You follow God. That's the only thing they can get you with. And frankly, that's the best testimony of all. Plots will come and go. 
in the end, they will be the same. That's part of Daniel's point. It looks different, but really, it's the same. But you just then need to be the same. You don't change. You don't shift. Speaking of which, Daniel 10 and 11. Daniel 10 and 11. We move from promotion. Daniel is promoted because God is still sovereign. And we move through plotting of these wicked men. But even though it seems so much more sinister, here's what you have to know. It's still the same. It may look different to you, but to God, it's no different whatsoever. And so we should be steadfast. And so therefore, promotion moves to plot and moves then to perseverance. And that's the third point. Verses 10 and 11. Perseverance. Perseverance. Almost at the center of this entire narrative, you see while everything swirling around Daniel is changing, shifting, rebalancing, reorganizing, restructuring, intensifying, altering, Daniel's totally consistent. There's nothing different in his life. In fact, in, the, in these verses, verses 10 through 11, when dealing with his perseverance, the only thing that changed is this. The written document was signed. That's the only thing that's different. There was one moment when the document wasn't signed, and now the document was signed, and when Daniel knew that, notice this, he entered his house. Nothing changed. He had no hesitation. His resolve doesn't change. His lifestyle doesn't change. His daily schedule doesn't change. Think about that. I think about that all the time. When there's a new crisis, guess what? My whole calendar changes. Hence, I have no calendar. So, but guess what? For Daniel, nothing changed. Why? Because he knew his God didn't what? Change. So I don't change either. I don't change either. He did what he was going to do. He entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. You know what else didn't change? His obedience to Scripture. His obedience to Scripture. You say, well, what, what does that have to do with open windows and stuff? And some people think, oh, is it open window so that he could show everybody that I'm... Well, yes, it, is, it would be kind of public, I, I would recognize in that regard. But the main emphasis is this. In 1 Kings 8, Solomon said this to God that he would have mercy on his people as they were building the temple. And that even when, because of Israel's inevitable sins, because no one cannot sin, pardon the double negative, they'll be cast into exile. And he said this, if they pray toward Jerusalem, God, will you still hear them? And will you still bring them home when they pray from Jerusalem? And God said, I will answer that prayer. And Daniel read the book of Kings. And Daniel knew what Solomon had said in 1 Kings 8. And so what did Daniel say? I'm in exile. I'm the guy that Solomon hundreds of years ago talked about. And I will pray to where? Jerusalem. And so in obedience to the scripture, he made a personal application to have a window facing Jerusalem and to pray from that window toward Jerusalem to show God as a testimony that he obeyed God's word and abided by God's promise. Solomon obeyed the scripture, and that didn't change. That didn't change. In fact, Saul, and Daniel, excuse me, Daniel's convictions didn't change. 
Daniel's convictions didn't change. You see, you can obey the scripture in a lot of different ways. Do you have to have an open window? No. Do you have to do things a certain way? No. And Daniel, though, even the applications that he formed in his heart, the way that he had made commitments to God about how to apply the scripture, that didn't change. Whether that be the windows in the roof chamber or whether that be, notice the next phrase, he continued, that's a key word, he continued, he didn't stop. He had made a commitment in his heart. He had dedicated himself to a certain way to do things before the Lord. He had made a vow, in a sense, before the Lord, and he would keep it no matter what, even to his own harm. He continued, what? Kneeling on his knees. Do you have to kneel on your knees to pray? No. There's all kinds of postures of prayer in the Scripture. Standing up, hands raised, on your knees, flat on your back, as you're praying on your bed, sitting in the night watches. You can have almost any position in the Bible and pray. I haven't seen a handstand, but nevertheless, you can have a lot of different positions and pray. Do you have to be on your knees? And the answer is no, but he did. Why? Because he made a commitment, and he would not change his convictions. And not only that, he prayed three times a day. Do you have to pray three times a day? Well, technically, the Bible says pray without ceasing. So I guess you could pray three times plus. You can play seven times. Psalm 119 talks about that. But Daniel dedicated himself to three times about these kinds of matters in this specific place with this specific posture. Why? Because he had made a commitment to Yahweh. He made a commitment to Yahweh. And you know, notice he didn't just not change his obedience to Scripture. He did not change his convictions. He did not change also his worship. This is important. Notice the next phrase, praying and giving thanks before his God. Praying and giving thanks encompasses the entire gamut of worship. You see, prayer, and this might be our dilemma, if the king of, if we were in the time of Medo-Persia and the king Darius gave the injunction, you can't make a petition, for some of us that would destroy our entire prayer life. Because all we do in prayer is just make what? Requests. That's all we do. That's what we think prayer exists for. It's so that we can send our to-do list to God so that he can do things for us. But Daniel knew that's not the main point of prayer. Daniel knew the gamut of prayer is this. You pray and worship God, and then you give thanks and everything in between. You are mainly exalting God and extolling God and meditating and musing on him and being in wonder and assigning worth and value and praise to all that he is and all that he has done. And yes, does it include request? Daniel didn't have to disrupt his prayer life at all because his prayer life was more than just requests. And furthermore, he didn't diminish his prayer life at all. You know, sometimes with these kinds of persecutions and problems, maybe people wouldn't praise the Lord. Maybe they wouldn't give thanks Daniel did. Daniel did. He didn't change one thing. He didn't change one thing. And just to show you, nothing changed. Not his obedience, not his resolve, not his convictions, not his worship. The text at the end emphasizes, as he had been doing what previously? Nothing changed. His practice did not change. Here's the question. 
could Daniel have changed some of those convictional elements? Absolutely. Do you have to pray three times? No. Do you have to be on your knees? No. Can you withstand and refrain from making certain kinds of requests for a certain kinds of time for 30 days? Sure. That could hypothetically happen. He could make a lot of modifications to what was going on here and still not step over the line. Is it inherently sinful? No, it's not inherently sinful to do so. But Daniel knew in his heart he would be in a problem because the reason that he would be making those changes is not to please the Lord, but to serve himself. And he knew he couldn't do that. He knew in his heart he could not go back on a commitment that he made to God because that would just be self-serving and not worshiping God. And it would send a message to everyone around him and in his government that I I, I tell you all the time, I in my politics am for God, but in my life I'm not. That's what the message would have been. It would have been, yes, God is sovereign over nations, but he is not sovereign over me. That would have been the message that Daniel sent. And Daniel could not, he could not let that message be sent by his actions. He had to show God reigns over all. He even reigns over the king. Even he reigns over my life to the death. That's what Daniel had to say. So he could not change. And guess what? Everyone knew that that was on the line. And everyone knew that that was the message that he was sending, and everyone knew that he would make that message by his actions. That's why it says in verse 11, then these men came by agreement, the conspiracy, and found Daniel seeking to make a petition. You say, but he wasn't making a petition. He was praying and giving thanks. Well, he was doing everything in between, and they knew that. They got him on the letter of the law. And they even got him on the spirit of the law because clearly he was making supplications before his God. They got him on the letter of the law. They got him on the supplication or the the principle, the spirit of the law. They got him and they knew that that was Daniel's issue. Don't miss this. When we make commitments before the Lord, even commitments of our own conscience, we swear do not change. Keep doing what you have been doing before the Lord. Don't bend on it. Especially don't bend just to save your own skin. That is not what pleases Christ. Let's not forget that. Well, let's see if we can push through this. Then you got the prosecution, verses 12 through 15. Daniel's definitely persevered. That goes without question. Now you have prosecution, and like so many stories before, there's just complete human inability here to make any difference. These men, in verse 12, they came near to the king, having caught Daniel red-handed, and now they're going to try to catch the king. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who seeks to make a petition, O king, and the king has to concede. Yes, I did. And not only did I sign it, the word is certain according to the laws of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. And so there's an agreement. And the king has confirmed it. And so they have the trap laid and set. Verse 13, then they answered and said before the king. And every word here rhetorically is meant to trap the king. Daniel, 
Notice, they don't even use Daniel's Babylonian name or even if they gave him a Medo-Persian name. They don't use that name. They just use the name Daniel. Why? Because it's an insult. It's meant to bring out that he's Jewish. And they don't like those kind of people. Speaking of which, notice the next phrase. Who is one of the exiles from what? Judah. Can you believe it, this prisoner? Can you believe it, this guy whose, whose nation was doubly conquered? Medo-Persia, we didn't even have to conquer him. He already came pre-conquered. That's how bad this guy is. And he pays no attention to you, O king. He hates you. And to your injunction, which you signed, all your power. What does Daniel say? Pfft. Nothing. Why are they piling on all of this rhetoric to make it impossible for the king to back out? Because to do so, the king would lose face. Because to do so, the king would have to admit, Daniel's more powerful than me. And that could topple his entire government, so he can't do it. They are setting this trap. And they say, and you can't stop this from happening because why? He keeps seeking, not just one time. The evidence is irrefutable. Keep seeking to make his petition three times a day. Not just one time a day, not three times. And not just one day of the days, because maybe he didn't get the memo. But every single day keeps going on and on. The trap has been laid. It's an irrefutable case. The king can't back out of it. But you know what's astonishing? He tried. Verse 14. Then as soon as the king heard this word, he was greatly distressed within himself and set his mind on saving Daniel. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being so valuable to your boss that when somebody says we should fire this guy and traps the boss into doing it, the boss spends his entire day trying to figure out a way to save your life and save your job. That's the kind of integrity, that's the kind of value, that's the kind of character Daniel had. That he could get into the heart of a king that quickly. You know, Daniel 6 doesn't happen too far after the takeover. And so quickly the king loved Daniel to that point that it broke his heart to do this, and he did it until sunset. He figured out every which way to delay the injunction, to try to exert himself and use everything at his disposal to deliver him. But though Daniel had amazing integrity to the point where the king loved him that much, and that's a lesson for us in and of itself, the king has no power, and those men know it. They came by what? Trapped. It's over. There's nothing you can do. And so with that, the prosecution that takes place, you have the perseverance of Daniel, then you have the prosecution that takes place in verses 12 through 15. It moves to the penalty in verses 16 and 17. You know what's fascinating in verse 16? The king is so distraught. The text just says, then the king said. It doesn't even tell you what he said, probably because he didn't have the strength to say it. He didn't have the strength to say it. He was so sad, so despondent over what had to happen. He just said, quote unquote, the word. Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. This is a time that seemingly is of defeat. And in this time where Daniel's brought, cast into the lion's den, and that's a terrifying experience, 
I mean, there's people wonder, were, were there many lions here? Yes, there had to have been more than one. It's in the plural. And moreover, we know from archaeological data that there was a lot of lions. And on top of that, for all the lions to eat the families of all the people, there had to have been quite a few lions. And a den is just a pit in the ground. It's not that large. It's significant. But it's liberals who argue that Daniel just was a really good hider, he just was able to like sneak into a corner and, and all the lines were just missing him. Look, that's not what's going on here. That's not even found in the word den. Look, this is so terrifying. One time there was a museum here opening called Passages and they gave a VIP tour for people, initially professors, pastors, things like that. And I was walking along with them in this um, tour and they said hey there's the kids section over there well naturally i just go to the kids section and so i'm walking around the kids section looking around and they had put this very very real life looking lion on the ground and i wasn't paying attention i just looked down and there's a lion staring at me and i scream <laughs> and all these vips just turn around and i'm like nothing to see here and i actually fell over the lion at that point <laughs> this is terrifying this is terrifying. You got real lines here. A stuffed line would take me out. <laughs> These are the real ones. And in this moment, where it looks like everything is over for Daniel, this is astounding. The king answered and said to Daniel, he just blurts this out. Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself save you. The king is a pagan. The king doesn't know God. The king doesn't recognize God, but he has been in distress all day. He hasn't been able to figure anything out. He hasn't been able to understand why this is happening or how to deliver Daniel. And he loves Daniel. And he realizes this in this moment. Your God, not me, not me, not my God's, We've exhausted every option on my level. The only one who's left by process of elimination is your God. And here's what he also recognized. Whom you constantly serve. This word serve is found throughout the book of Daniel. That's what Daniel does to his God. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do to their God. And he realized this. The only reason Daniel can continue to serve his God and exist to this point regarding and disregarding and in spite of all the trials and all the tribulations and all the tests and all the near-death experiences they had, the only reason why they can continually and constantly serve their God is this, because their God has always saved them. And so he blurts out with all of his heart, I can't do anything for you, but your God can, and he will. And does this guy believe in God? Does he know this for a fact? Of course he doesn't, because he's in distress the whole rest of the chapter. But, he, but God in his providence forced this proud king to confess and to declare what was really happening in this moment. It was not that Daniel was defeated. It was not that the conspiracies of men ruled. It was not that he was about to die. It was this, that our God is still sovereign. And that has not changed one bit. And so in a sense, in a sense, in faith, the king puts the stone, seals it with his own signet ring so that nothing would be changed. Why? Because there will be no human intervention here. Why? Because there is no human intervention necessary. It is God or nothing. And that is what will take place. And with that, then the penalty moves to the preservation 
moves to the preservation, verse 18, all the way through verse 23. The king obviously doesn't know. He made this bold statement prompted by providence, but he has no idea if it's going to come true. And so he spent the night fasting. No entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. You know what the irony here is? The king, who you think is in control, he has no control. He can't control his satraps. He can't control his commissioners. He can't control the lions. He can't control his own laws that he made. Think about that. And he can't even control his sleep. He's not the first king where sleep has fled from him. You remember Nebuchadnezzar when he had the dream? What happened to him? Could he sleep? The answer was what? No, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Do you already know right here, before anything happens, that God is sovereign? He arose at dawn, went hurriedly to the lion's den. When he came near to the lion's den, he cried out with a troubled voice. And notice, notice this. Notice what the king said to Daniel. Daniel servant of the living God, has your God been able to save you from the lions? Notice what the king didn't ask. Daniel, you okay? He didn't ask about Daniel. He asked about Daniel's God, because that's the main question. And you know what's even more amazing? Daniel's answer. If I was Daniel, I'd say, yeah, I'm okay. Thanks a lot, man. Daniel gives the most profound witness, a respectful one. O king, live forever. My God, my God, I want to have a personal relationship, sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me. O king, I have done no harm against you. Do you notice that language of harm? I, they haven't harmed me, and I, I haven't done any harm against you. Do you want to know why that matters? And even look furthermore, king was so happy about this news, said for Daniel to be taken up out of the lion's den. He's taken out, and here's what it says again. No harm whatsoever was found on him. Why this repetition of harm? It's because of this, two reasons. One, do you remember what happened when Daniel's friends came out of the fiery furnace? No harm had what happened to them. What's the message? Same God, same salvation, same power. Still sovereign. Still sovereign. Nothing changed. And it goes one step further. This word harm is used in Daniel 2 to mean destroy. Do you remember when the stone hit the statue and destroyed it to the ground? Do you remember that? That word for destroyed is the word harm. That's like the ultimate harm. And here's the point. You will never harm my people because the only ones who will be destroyed are who? Any nation that opposes the people of God. That is the message. Verse 24, the penalty moves to the preservation, moves then to the punishment. The punishment in verse 24. And here is the punishment. Then the king said, and again it says the word. He, he's emotional for a different reason now. Before he was emotional, desperate, and couldn't get the words out to throw Daniel in the pit. This time he's so happy, he can't even say the words. He just kinds of grunts. And then they get the people who, who were the perpetrators, who had brought charges against Daniel. Same word used in Daniel chapter 3. All these people who have conspiracies, they cannot stop the plan of God. And he had them cast with their children and their wives into the lion's den. They hadn't reached the bottom of the lion's den until what? The lions, and here's what it says, overpowered them and crushed all of their bones. And you say, well, that's pretty gruesome. Yes, but don't miss this. Don't miss this. The word overpowered there, it is the same word in the dream where the stone overpowers the statue. And don't miss this. 
crushed all of their bones. What does the stone do to the statue? It actually what? Crushed it to dust, to pieces. Do you all remember this? And what is God saying through this miracle, this second miracle that's happening through the text? Any opponent who tries to stop my plan will succumb to it. I will overpower and crush, just like I always plan to do, just like my son will do to every single nation. This is the near prophecy fulfilled that guarantees the far. This is just a foretaste of the future. This is just the proof. Our God is still sovereign, and he will always be what? Sovereign to the very end. And to that end, you don't just have the promotion. You don't just have plots. You don't just have perseverance and prosecution and penalty and preservation and punishment now you have proclamation and what does Darius do he writes to all people nations men of every tongue who are inhabiting the land why does he do that you know what's amazing is that phrase ultimately is used of the messiah who has obedience of all people nations and every single tribe and tongue Jesus that's what Darius is recognizing they're not my people they're God's people They're the ones whom God will reign over, positively or negatively, in the end. That's when peace will abound. And he says this, I make a decree. I take all my authority and I give it to God, that in all the dominion of my kingdom, I may have dominion, more on that in a second, but it's not mine, ultimately. Men are to fear and be in dread before the God of Daniel. You don't just view God, that's fearing him, with the greatest reverence and the greatest terror because of his transcendence. You live constantly. You live constantly with that influence over your life. You're just every moment in dread of him. Why? Because unlike the idols, he's the living God. And unlike kingdoms which rise and fall, he endures what? Forever. And what do we have here? His kingdom is one which will not be what? Destroyed. Daniel came to no harm. Therefore, you know his kingdom will never be what? Destroyed. And his dominion will be unto the what? End. Notice this. The king said, I have dominion. But what does he really know? God has the best dominion. That never ends. And what makes him so sure about all this? Our God, verse 27, saves. Our God saves. That's the pinnacle of his goodness. That's the pinnacle of his power. Because then he can deliver people from anybody, and he can just do raw power and signs and wonders. And he can do it anywhere, in heaven and on what? Earth. And how does he know that God is a savior? So perfect in goodness, so perfect in power, because he saved Daniel from the what? the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the kingdom of Darius and in the kingdom of of Cyrus the Persian continuously. Here's what you learn. Our God is still sovereign. He's still sovereign. He didn't change when everything changed. Why do you have Daniel in the lions then? Here is Daniel's testimony to you. From the moment I left home as a little kid and went to Babylon, to the moment God took me home, even when every nation changed. Daniel's an old man in Daniel 6. It's been 80 years. God is still what? Sovereign. And what Daniel had, he doesn't give us a promise. He doesn't give us a promise. It's not, hey, when you face the lions, then he'll get you out of it. We know that, but it's a proof. It's a proof that our God is still sovereign. 
and he is still in control, and he is still in control in Daniel's time, but it actually, because it intersects with God's plan so much and evidence that God's plan will be carried out, it's a, it's a proof that God is not just sovereign in Daniel's life, but beyond Daniel's life, which means that God then, because we're part of beyond Daniel's life, God is sovereign in our lives, and also what? Beyond our lives to the very end. He is still sovereign all the way through. He never changes, and that is Daniel's in the lion's den. Shall we pray? Our God, Father, we, we know you do not change. And our eyes are so tempted constantly to see changes in our lives and disruptions in our lives and to just forget about the God in heaven. May we remember Daniel in the lion's den, that the plots may change and even intensify, but in the end, before you, they are always the same. And the questions people have, they come and go, and nations transition, and bosses come and pass and pass through and pass away. But you, O oh God, never change. And you are always reigning. And more than that, you save. And you save to the end. And your dominion never stops. May we be fixed on you. And therefore, may we never change in our worship and witness of you. In your name we pray. Amen.